Well, Luke, it's that time of the week where we tell folks about the Michael and Us Patreon. As always, there's much activity on the Michael and Us Patreon. Right now, we've had a very special two-part episode where we've been answering fan questions. That's right, anything the fans on the Patreon page have wanted to know, we have answered. Anything. Yeah, we're trying to get into the habit of uh, mentioning the Patreon uh, as often as we can. We've been doing that more recently. I know it's annoying, but please, uh, I have to put my children through college. Well, because we rarely mentioned it for two years, I think a lot of people didn't realize uh, that it exists. And we don't just throw up bonus material on there. There's a full extra episode every week, so double the content. Anyone who joins at the Al Gore tier and contributes a monthly tithe of five Yankee dollars gets access to our back catalog which I don't know how many episodes that is, but uh, well, it's, it's a lot. A few hundred, probably. We've got f- like three or four years of Patreon-exclusive episodes up there, as well as a continuing conveyor belt of new ones. Yeah, and lots of other treats and bonus material as well. Also, just want to say thank you to the Jacobin Radio Network for hosting us. Check out their other shows, including A World to Win and The Dig. Well, should we get on with the show, Will? Yes, let's do it. Patreon.com slash Michael and Us. I left my heart in San Francisco. High on a hill, it calls to me. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, folks. Uh, My co-host and I, I'm I'm getting excited. (laughs) I'm already talking over him because uh, he and I are uh, positively vibrating uh, after what we've just seen. We've got a good one. We have so many sights to show you. I I mean, after last week, our our disagreement, our tension over the Breckenmeyer film Blue State, I I was worrying if Luke and I were... Maybe just getting a little bit too out of line with each other, getting a bit too disconnected. I was worried that was I was I losing the taste for this show after all these years? But no, we watched a movie today that just affirmed to me that there are still so many horizons and vistas. Yeah, I mean, eventually, I think we are going to split over artistic differences, much like uh, Simon and Garfunkel, much like the Beatles. I mean, I'm I'm still very keen on uh, transitioning this into the Brecken cast, <laughs> and uh, you know, haven't gotten you on board yet. So I think we might have to go our separate ways. You know, I'm going to go on to make uh, two decades worth of critically acclaimed uh, solo albums as, you know, a great uh, singer, songwriter, podcaster, and you're going to have a mediocre uh, acting career. And then, you know, we'll reunite in 10 years time in in Central Park and people will love it. Please, no disrespect for the star of carnal knowledge, (laughs) but I always knew that Brecken Meyer would be the Yoko Ono of the podcast. Uh, Just 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 kidding, folks. No disrespect to Yoko or or Brecken. Just want to make a cheap joke at the expense of an easy target. Well, how are you doing, Luke? What's on your mind? Well, I've got a small item here uh, that's just kind of a fun little thing. You know, we were talking on the last episode, you know, one of uh, the film Blue State was, you know, one of our kind of periodic occasions to talk about the subject of uh, Canadian provincialism. Now, I don't know how many listeners we have who are also, you know, I don't know how how big our crossover with Joe Rogan's audience is. But if you uh, saw a recent episode at some point earlier this month, Joe Rogan trended in Canada because of a two or three minute segment 
segment in which uh, he professed his uh, zero understanding of uh, Canadian systems of government and politics. There, wow. And then he said something like, uh, you know, Canada's communists. They're fucked. They got to get rid of that guy referring to... Uh, Referring to our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, and then his guest, uh, who's someone called Segura, agreed and said, yeah, Canada's crazy. Rogan admitted that he has no idea how the system works in Canada, but claimed he liked Trudeau before the pandemic. I was like, he's a handsome guy, seems sweet, good looking guy, confident, good talker. And then during the pandemic, I'm like, oh, you're a fucking dictator. Anyway, I'm not bringing this up uh, to defend the honor of the right honorable Justin Trudeau from Joe Rogan. I'm bringing this up because, you know, this was a two to three minute, I mean, this is a throwaway exchange on the Joe Rogan experience. And this made national news in Canada. Okay, this didn't just trend on Twitter. Uh, what I was just reading from was a story on Global News, which is one of the big, uh, you know, it's one of the three big TV networks in Canada. So we've talked about this again and again, uh, this phenomenon that, you know, recurs in Canada, where any any mention of Canada in the United States uh, doesn't matter if it's totally irrelevant, doesn't matter if it's throwaway. It's a story. You know, we think of uh, classic examples like when SNL did a sketch about the late former Toronto mayor, Rob Ford. Did it matter that the sketch had nothing to do with Toronto or Rob Ford? That, that Did it matter that the actor uh, ostensibly playing Rob Ford did didn't sound anything like him. Did it matter that the sketch uh, itself, quite apart from having anything to do with what was then a very volatile and also very funny political situation that was unfolding, you know, in a major North American city? Did it matter that it had nothing to do with that and was instead just a string of cookie cutter Canada cliches? Absolutely not. People in Canada were posting this on Facebook. It was like, look, folks, we made it. We made the big time. We made American Late Night. Doesn't get any bigger than that. Do you remember that? <laughs> there was that time that week when, you know, John Stewart, in his maudlin way, after doing 10 minutes of jokes about Rob Ford, decided to to get serious for a minute, the way that he often does. And he said, he said words to the effect of, now listen, Toronto, I'm, I'm not from Toronto. I, I don't know your city. But what I do know is that it may be fun to laugh at Rob Ford right now, but, <laughs> but it won't be fun to bury him. And that's the way that we're headed right now. And I remember listening to that and saying, like, well, what do you want me to do about it? I mean, I don't, I want him to resign too. <laughs> the whole point is that he won't resign. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it is so funny. And I mean, this is maybe beating a dead horse, so we don't need to spend too much time on this. But it is so funny how, like, we got our own, you know, much more provincial and smaller scale and lower stakes version of the Trump era in Rob Ford. Whereas just, you know, the city's uh, civic culture realizing that, you know, there's actually no mechanism. Uh, it, you know, once shame and convention have failed, there's no mechanism by which you can remove an intransigent mayor. You know, city council was able to strip him of some of his powers. And, you know, mayors, uh, although this may be changing soon, courtesy of Rob Ford's brother. We'll talk about that on a future show. But mayors in uh, Canadian cities, you know, we have a weak mayor system. So they don't have a lot of power to begin with, necessarily. They're a vote on city council. And then they have some, you know, discretionary powers. And I think some minor executive powers as well. So city council took that away. They symbolically turned their backs on Rob Ford. But there were, you know, there were months of just every day, Will Sloan, uh, myself, and our fellow Torontonians just being the sweet summer children that we were, you know, there would be a new Rob Ford disgrace every day. And we'd be like, okay, well, you know, he's, he's, he's going to go now, right? It's like, we're literally watching a live feed of a police camera as a helicopter follows his Cadillac Escalade, <laughs> you know, down the highway, you know, the crack tape that 
that he said didn't exist definitely does exist and the police have it. Surely that's it. No. <laughs> and and then several months of being like, and and when will his supporters finally turn on him? His, <laughs> yeah, yeah, his supporters yeah. now know that he, he lied to them. <laughs> he lied yeah. about doing drugs. We had our own January 6th hearings. Yeah. yeah and we had our own like Liz Cheney's in the form of, you know, forgotten, uh, you know, minor conservative uh, players on the Toronto civic scene. Oh, like Denzel Min Denzel and Wong. Wong. Karen Stintz, the former head of the TTC, who is a very right-leaning city councillor, but just awful politics. But, you know, uh, but she didn't like the way Rob Ford was acting. So I, she, I, was a, she was a folk hero, too. I mean, we got the whole Norm Kelly phenomenon out of this. Norm Kelly was a right-leaning Scarborough city councillor, just a dinosaur, like a man who was just a weekend at Bernie's like corpse in city council. Well, who, and and uh, maybe we've talked about this like, you know, f- in a different era of the podcast. I feel like this is kind of, you know, a Michael and us season 1.5 kind of topic when at norm was still alive and kicking. But I mean, it, it, you say Weekend at Bernie's. I mean, it literally was that. I mean, so it, for people that don't know, you know, Norm Kelly became like Toronto's tweeting deputy mayor. He was, yeah, he was Rob Ford's deputy mayor. And when Rob Ford had to go to rehab and when Rob Ford had all of his executive power stripped, Norm Kelly got them. So Rob Ford was still the mayor, but Norm Kelly had certain of those executive powers. And he was widely perceived as being a pretty calm and steady leader, you know, a fairly uh, milquetoast centrist guy who got got along with everyone. And then I think what you're alluding to is that he also had this Twitter account that, you know, some some bored people in his office would run and it would always be stuff like uh like he he started a feud with Meek Mill because Meek well, Mill had disrespected Drake. Right. Well, so that's how it started, but there's a there's a rumor or a theory, I mean, I I think a reasonably uh, informed one about uh, how it started and it was that the person operating his Twitter account, you know, was using TweetDeck or something and forgot to sign into their own and they tweeted at uh Meek Mill, "You're not welcome here" because he, you know, he was in a feud with with Drake. And then that went viral because they accidentally tweeted it from Norm Kelly's Twitter account. I and mean, now it was all like, of a sudden it was the funny 170 year old city councilor <laughs> who's who who tweets about rap, and they really leaned into it. And all of a sudden, Norm Kelly was selling T-shirts that said "Too Lit to Politic." And it was him wearing them, and we got such spectacles as Norm Kelly again. This this dinosaur, this a, conser- a climate change denier. Yeah, he. I mean, obviously, yeah, his politics were awful. And he, him on stage with Drake, like <laughs> striking a rap pose. It's just the classic like rap and granny comic archetype that they foisted onto this man. Anyway, he lost re-election. <laughs> <laughs> and now now he's just an old man somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, he, he captured uh, the world's heart for a little while because he was perceived at first as being in contrast to Rob Ford. It's like he was a, a kindly grandpa who was conservative, but a good kind of conservative and also cosmopolitan and embraced uh, the new diverse side of Toronto by being into rap which he was absolutely into. He he absolutely knew who Drake was before his intern tweeted about it. <laughs> 
Anyway, that's all a roundabout way of saying that the Ford era, I think, really inoculated us to some of the dimensions of the Trump era, just because, I mean, we were we were the resistance libs of Rob Ford's Toronto. Yeah, 100%. Actually, there was one more Toronto personality I'd like to mention here from that era, mentioned in a friendly way, who's actually, a, f- funnily enough, just incidentally, a link between that era and uh, the present situation in the United States. I'm talking about your friend from your iWeekly days, uh, Edward. Keenan, who was, uh, you know, a writer who, uh, I think, probably one of the the sort of premier writers of the uh, Rob Ford era, wrote very intelligently about what was going on at the time. He ended up at the Toronto Star's Washington Bureau, and I was reading something from him a few weeks ago in the Star, because he's been covering the January 6th hearings, and he actually mentioned the Rob Ford era. And one of the things he said, and I think he's absolutely right about this, was, you know, during the Rob Ford era, there was this constant belief that people had. You know, I, I will cop to this and, you know, maybe you'll cop to it as well. This belief that we had that, you know, if journalists just asked the right question, you know, put him on the spot, that would end him, you know? And there's something very similar going on with the January 6th hearings, right? It's like, oh, if if just the right questions are asked, you know, not only is that going to end him, but all the all the people who've been supporting him up until this point are going to realize we've been lied to, you know, the election wasn't stolen, there were no 2000 mules, etc. And you know, come on, that's not the world we live in. Well, speaking of journalism, let's talk once again about our favorite journalist, Alexandra Pelosi, that's right, the daughter of Nancy Pelosi, and her 2015 film, San Francisco 2.0. San Francisco, the counterculture capital of the world, is in the middle of a pretty drastic makeover. San Francisco is now the world's leading tech paradise. The way I kind of think about it, it's almost like a digital gold rush. When you bring in these tech companies who innovate, the entire community is going to make progress. Everyone is doing something. Everyone is doing something extraordinary. But as the march of progress pushes forward, will some be left behind? If the trends continue, the people who've made this city, the magnet that it is, they're all going to go away. I'm worried about a city that is becoming out of reach and out of touch. So let's let's establish uh, who Alexandra Pelosi is a little bit. It's been a while since we've you know re-entered her corpus, her cinema on this show. But I mean, I really think she is a Mike Linus all-star. Uh, she is somebody who, uh, despite being the daughter of Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, and despite being somebody who makes her films for HBO and has been doing so for what, 20 years, a little over 20 years, probably going on a quarter of a century at this point. Um, basically, no one has ever heard of these movies. No one watches them. I, th- I, I think, not being ironic, uh, that we have probably done more to popularize uh, her cinema than almost anyone else. I just want to <laughs> underline everything you just said. She is the daughter of Nancy Pelosi. She makes documentaries for HBO. <laughs> She has been making them for 20 years. You can find them on HBO Max or Crave in Canada. Nobody talks about them. Like nobody has reviewed, nobody has written the definitive essay about these films. I'm looking across the Gore Lieberman studios at you, Will. I hope you're going to do that one day. Well, you know what? Maybe I will. Uh, I just want to mention a movie that she made in 2017, which we are never going to watch for this podcast. (laughs) Well, we watched the trailer and I feel like that's as good as watching the movie. It's called The Words That Built America. And it is, it's an experimental film, basically. It's, it's, yeah, it's like, it's like Andy Warhol's Empire State, something like that. It's, it's 
an hour long and it's a reading of the Declaration of Independence, the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights by hundreds of figures of note in American life. So all the living former presidents, all your favorites we, in the trailer, we saw uh, Kamala Harris, Fareed Zakaria, uh, Tucker Carlson, Robert, Anderson De, Robert Cooper. De Niro, yeah. Robert Duvall, Samuel L. Jackson, just that that range of people. Uh, Donald Trump yeah. is one of them. <laughs> well, you you gotta have all the you gotta have all the presidents living or dead. I mean, conspicuously absent, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Don't see him on the cast list. Now, is that because she said this far but no further? Yeah, of course well, that's what it is. Or is it just because Ber- also he wouldn't agree to or do did, it? Did but... Bernie Sanders him was he offered and did he say no? That sounds stupid. <laughs> I mean, it actually could be either one. I don't know, but but everyone else was in it. Frankly, in my view, one percent of films have autistic merit and ninety nine percent of films are crap. And I do believe, Alexandra, that yours falls into the latter category. That film is a bit of an outlier in her filmography, just in terms of style. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a little more avant-garde. I mean, it fits well within her her filmography in terms of like outlook, which is just a sort of earnest belief in the American experiment. Yeah, right. So the standard Alexandra Pelosi film, if you haven't heard any of our previous episodes, is sort of like, you know, she does a safari into, you know, a red state or some kind of red state, you know, milieu, and she discovers that, well, hey, you know, they're just like us. Yeah. Something like that. Her breakthrough movie came in 2002, a documentary called Journeys with George, where she joined the press bus that followed around George W. Bush during his primary run. It won an Emmy for Outstanding Picture Editing for Nonfiction Programming. It was... (laughs) It was uh, nominated for a number of other Emmys, including Outstanding Nonfiction Special. It was the honorable mention in the category of a best movie from a wealthy political scion at the Nantucket Film Festival. That documentary established a lot of what would come to dominate her movies. The novelty of it is, so I may be the daughter of Nancy Pelosi. I may be a born and bred liberal, but I'm going to follow around a conservative politician in his primary run. (laughs) Record scratch. And it turns out that he's an okay guy. That's basically it. Like you see a lot of her sort of chatting with George Bush. You don't hear anything about his policies. You don't hear anything about uh, John McCain has a black baby. Do you approve of that? (laughs) Nothing like that. But you do see George W. Bush be like, hey, uh, Alexandra, it uh, looks like you have a bit of a crush on that other reporter, huh? Isn't that uh, you're going to ask him out? You know, some of that. And I mean, if the takeaway is that George Bush is kind of an affable guy in real life, would you would you believe that Alexandra Pelosi, you know, the scion of a of a wealthy, politically connected blue state family was able to get along with George Bush, a man uh, educated at Yale, Uh, the uh, the scion (laughs) of a wealthy blue state political (laughs) family, (laughs) educated on a different coast. (laughs) From there, she, as you alluded to, launched into a series of documentaries where she goes on road trips through the American heartland. There's Right America Feeling Wronged, some voices from the campaign trail. There's Citizen USA, a 50-state road trip. It's great. It's like, what if Hunter S. Thompson, but shitty and no drugs involved? Outside the bubble, on the road with Alexandra Pelosi, American Selfie, One Nation Shoots Itself. I don't think we've watched that one. We should check that out. No, and actually, can I just say here, uh, I would like to make a request to all of you listening, um, because you've been able to help us out in the past when we haven't been able to find things. There is a film by Alexandra Pelosi 
Pelosi. Uh, I wanted to do it this week. It's her second film. Uh, it's called Diary of a Political Tourist. It is from 2004. This is the Dead Sea Scrolls of our podcast, okay? We are unable to get this film anywhere. It is her chronicle of the Democratic primaries in 2004. Now, if we get to the end of this show's run, whenever that is, and we have not done that film, I think we will have failed in our mission. But we can't find it anywhere. We can't even pay to watch it. So if anybody out there somehow has access to this film, somehow has a private link we can watch it at, for some reason is uh, deranged and somehow has like a file of it on their computer, please get in touch. Let us know, you know, tweet at us, DM us on the Patreon, whatever. We have to see Diary of a Political Tourist. You will get a thank you on the pod. Now, so many of these documentaries follow the exact same format. It starts with her saying, I'm from San Francisco and my mother is Nancy Pelosi. I'm a liberal. But it seems to me that there are a lot of people feeling discontented in this country. Even though a lot of people were enthusiastic about Barack Obama being reelected, a lot of people weren't. So I decided it was time to bridge the divides. I went on a road trip all through the red states to find out what conservatives are thinking. Through the hour-long running time of all of them, you hear these conservatives saying, you know, they'll say some things that uh, she doesn't like, like, well, uh, I think we need to build a wall to keep all the Mexicans out. Yeah, or climate change isn't real. And or... and the thing about Alexandra Pelosi is she she doesn't actually know what she believes. She knows the, the talking points. So she'll often say, but, but don't you think the wall is racist? And then these conservatives who actually know what they believe more than she does. They're like, what's racist about a country wanting to control its borders? And she has no response to that. Like, all they have to do is do the, the next karate move. And then she doesn't have a way to block it. Yeah, yeah. She only learned the first kata. They're, you know, a few belts ahead. And there's always a part two thirds of the way in where one of them will say, oh, but, you know, we all used to work at the mill or we all used to work at the steel factory. But then NAFTA came along and all those jobs went to Mexico and now I'm you know I'm I'm working at McDonald's and I get $5 an hour and she'll say $5 an hour is that even legal how can how can that be and you know what you want to say is have a, have a word with uh, your mother perhaps yeah maybe maybe <laughs> maybe find out why those jobs went to Mexico <laughs> yeah what what did your how did your mother vote on NAFTA <laughs> And then they always end with her saying, well, I sure learned a lesson. It's a big country. And while we may disagree, we all love our children. Yeah, America's a land of contrast. Every two years, she has a new documentary where she feels the need to go back out and solve the same riddle again. So she keeps doing this. Oh, her, her filmography is a Mobius strip where it just keeps coming, <laughs> going back. And forth. She never gets the answers that she needs. <laughs> now, we should say, because this podcast started out many, many years years ago, uh, eons ago, as, you know, a podcast concerned with the uh, cinematic oeuvre of Michael Moore, that we do see a lot of Michael Moore influence in the cinema of Alexandra Pelosi. And I'm, I'm not being ironic here. I mean, he invented a lot of the tropes of kind of modern documentary filmmaking. Uh, or at least popularized them. So Yeah, popularized them, you know, uh, with political filmmakers especially. So, you know, we've encountered this on, uh, on previous episodes. You know, we watched that one, Lessons from an American Primary. Uh, that was actually by a, a conservative filmmaker. Michael Moore Hates America, another one by a conservative
creative filmmaker or both of them. Right away, if you've ever seen a Michael Moore film, you know, they borrow his kind of earnest voiceover narration. They borrow his sort of gonzo journeyman style. And as well as that kind of, I'm just a regular guy from a small town who wants some answers, that that affect, that blue collar affect. Right. And even just really simple things like using stock footage in a sort of ironic, you know, exaggerated way. So Alexandra Pelosi does all of those things. Now, thing is, when Michael Moore made Roger and Me, right? I mean, it's like his persona in that film is not, it's not inauthentic, right? Like, it's a little different when Alexandra Pelosi, uh, you know, whose parents are worth, you know, God knows what, $150 million, and perhaps more after the alleged insider trading that's been happening uh, recently, you know, for her to go out in San Francisco and be like, oh, I'm just a simple gal from this West Coast town, and this is my city, but it's been undergoing some changes. I wanted to know what was happening to my hometown. <laughs> <laughs> so the film we watched this week, you know, having having cleared the ground on, on Alexandra Pelosi, I think you know, set ourselves up to talk about this movie. We had it down to a few candidates. And, uh, you know, there was one uh, that I'm sure we'll do at some point where she goes to mega churches or something. Uh, but this one, you know, all we had was a stub on IMDb or Wikipedia. I've got the one sentence synopsis here from IMDb. It says, the invasion of the technology elite causes economic division and upheaval in the city of San Francisco. So your case for it was, okay, what what this is going to be is uh, Alexandra Pelosi is going to say, look at all this great innovation that happens that's happening in San Francisco. Look at all these cool startups and entrepreneurs who are really revitalizing the city, but uh oh, affordable housing and economic inequality, etc. And uh, hey, what about the spirit of Jack Kerouac? And in the end, <laughs> Uh, at the end of the day, we need solutions that'll make San Francisco livable for everyone. And that is exactly what this movie is. I, I completely agree with that synopsis right up until the end, because I don't even think the film is as ambitious as how do we make it livable for everyone. It's sort of more like, how can we make sure that there are some houses that are affordable for people that aren't part of the tech boom? I think that is the limits of its of its vision. The movie is 39 minutes long. Thank God. Yeah, thank God. I think that the editorial statement of the movie is captured uh, by the you know first uh, minute or so and the last minute or so, both of which feature the uh, former California governor, Jerry Brown, who at the beginning says that Heraclitus quote, that famous quote about the river and how, you know, you never step in the same river twice. You know, that's that's meant to symbolize, you know, the, the movement of things, the march of progress in San Francisco. He says something about how, you know, that's inevitable. And then he appears at the end and he has some kind of, you know, cookie cutter lib statement about how you know well maybe maybe we can uh, do it a little uh, better we include, include inclusivity <laughs> and uh, something like that and then you know and then her narration just says something like well san francisco sure is a a city on the move and 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 you know will it will it figure out its problems well i grew up here folks and if there's one city uh, that can that can do it uh, it's it's this scrappy little town known for its tradition of disruption and nonconformity would you believe it san francisco <laughs> has has been forced to reinvent itself. Those are her exact words. <laughs> the, the first 10 minutes of this film, I was just, I was making notes on every single shot. At the beginning where she sets up the identity of San Francisco and she says that it has a proud tradition of nonconformity. And so, you know, there's kind of these allusions to, you know, whatever the anti-war movement. You she know. said, okay, when she says a proud tradition of nonconformity, <laughs> she shows us stock footage of the village the, people. The village people. That's the radical queer edge of San Francisco. <laughs> it's the village 
Twitch people. <laughs> and uh, she she shows us some stock footage of Kerouac and Ginsburg, who I'm sure she spent a lot of time reading. And yeah, says she that, says she's a real fan of the Dharma bums. She says that that represents, and I quote, the spirit of anti-materialism. <laughs> uh, but... but would you believe that there's now some panic? And she <laughs> illustrates this by showing us some footage of like cheesy 1950s monster movies. You know? that's, that, as you put it, like that's how seriously she takes this. It's like it's like monsters from B movies in the 50s demolishing buildings and people going like, whoa, whoa. It's like <laughs> if, if you're worried about the gentrification, you're this. You're silly. Just like these like flying saucers on strings and these claymation monsters. You're silly. What I do think comes through in the first 10 or 15 minutes of the movie, you know, is Pelosi herself, um, you know, despite her background, is very much trying to plant her flag on the counterculture. She's trying to claim it in some way. She is a, as a, you know, native uh, San Franciscan is trying to position herself as like, look, you know, these, these tech bros who are coming in uh, with their, with their startups and their incubators, you know, I see them as outsiders too. And and I actually do think there's something to that. I mean, not at all in the way that she means. they're carpetbaggers. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, it does speak to, in a sense, the, the class divide uh, that is at play for someone like her uh, in San Francisco, where for her, you know, it's not the it's not the divide between, you know, regular people and plutocrats or, you know, tech money. It's a divide between old money that she represents and new money. And for her, you know, the stakes of this are like, is the bougie cafe that's, you know, independently owned, but, you know, has like 10 million in revenue a year uh, where I get expensive expensive quiches like is that going to be priced out by something where you know the quiches are like tech bro friendly quiches or whatever like i think those are really the stakes for her this is a movie of two distinct halves there's the very upbeat first half and the very downbeat second half and in the first half i'm just going to interrupt i misunderstood you there i heard this is a movie with two distinct halves and i think that's a very lyrical way of putting it the class divide is between two groups of halves old money and new money (laughs) in the first half when she's talking about when she's showing us all these startup incubators and all these tech bros and all this, she buys all of it hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> she thinks it's all so cool. I mean, the closest thing we get to a critique of these companies is that she hasn't heard of any of them. So she's like, what, 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 how can you have so much money and I don't know who you are? And he says, well, it's because there are a lot of angel investors out there and uh, <laughs> maybe we're creating some new businesses. And she thinks that's really interesting. The, the, the sort of off culture that very google derived open concept uh, we've got legos in the lunchroom and free vending machines where if you work here you can get a bag of chips for free she thinks that's so cool and actually that i think the implication is that's kind of carrying on the spirit of the counterculture because these guys are innovators they're disruptors just like kerouac and ginsburg yeah they're they're disrupting the workplace uh you know you know what this is like this is like in the you know early 30s or whatever when you know at the height of the purges intellectuals from Western Europe would be given like a tour of the USSR or something where they would, you know, they'd be shown like, look at this dam that was built or something. And then they go back and be like, oh yeah, it's great. Everything's, everything's working. Uh, the, they're one five-year plan away 
from from utopian socialism. This is that, except it's like an old money lib going into startups and being like, wow, everyone here is is relaxed and they're well paid. And like, you know, they're actually here because they want to be here. Like she's she's mostly interviewing CEOs, by the way. You know, she has she has conversations with one person who's a CEO of, I don't know, some company that like is trying to turn homeless people into Wi-Fi hotspots or something like that. You know, it builds micro yurts for uh, people who've been uh, displaced by gentrification or something in exchange for them giving blood over an app or I don't know. But, you know, there's this one guy she interviews and she and she's quizzing him on you know, how rich he is. And she's saying, like, well, why don't you just go sit on a beach somewhere? And he's like, uh, well, because I, you know, I think I'm a naturally creative person. And for me, you know, I like to set myself goals and, and see if I can meet them. And the higher the goal, the better. And so the implication is that these are the beats. These are the beats of modern capitalism. You know, they're they're innovating to the sounds of bebop uh, and, and, you know, disrupting the culture. You know, they're 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 really artists. But that- then inevitably we have to get to the more tragic side of this. So she kind of eases her way into it with a segment where she interviews a woman, obviously a lower income woman who lives in a lower income neighborhood, who's sort of showing her around some of the new housing developments, talking about how everyone's being priced out of the neighborhood. And this section climaxes with her lamenting that they're about to close the baseball stadium, the historic baseball stadium, and move it to a more affluent area of town. And she says, you know, they're taking our history and they're destroying it. They're taking our history and claiming it for them, creating a new history for them. And then Alexander Pelosi, who has no rebuttal to this, actually says in one of the clumsiest transitions I've ever seen in a movie, says, of course, not all history is worth saving. And she moves directly into, you know, says nothing about the baseball stadium, moves directly into a section about how there was this big old eyesore factory (laughs) that had been out of business for 30 years, just collecting dust in the middle of town. And guess what? Some developers came in and they're turning it into a vibrant new neighborhood. This is one of the most incredible and I think revealing sequences of the movie. It's not even a sequence. It's just like, you know, a few shots because for Pelosi, this factory, which, you know, I can't remember if it was, you know, a steel mill or, you know, uh, some kind of manufacturing plant, something for her, it's an eyesore. That's the only way she can think of it. That's that's how she refers to it. There's no sense that this used to be part of a, a material base for a very different kind of economy. So when when something like that gets replaced by a brand new luxury condo or something. I mean, all she sees is, you know, dereliction being replaced by progress. There's no sense that the factory was actually part of a different kind of ecosystem or anything like that. It's just an ugly building. We hear a lot about legislation or loopholes in the law that make it easier for landlords and developers to evict people in rent-controlled properties. I mean, if you want to look at city council in San Francisco and find out what party has a monopoly on every seat there. I wouldn't be shocked if uh, a a lot of them are friends of Alexandra Pelosi's mother. Because we forgot to mention this, I do think it's worth mentioning the very throwaway scene, which I believe is actually the the transition into the bit about the stadium, which is a series of stock shots of uh, what she calls uh, exclusive members-only clubs that are being set up for this new elite in the city. The password is Fidelio, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is great, again, because she she's doing this sort of, you know, every man Michael Moore style narration. It's like she's referring to these, you know, exclusive members only clubs as if that's sort of an alien concept to her. Well, I know that some of her mother's friends uh, had a club of their own on an island somewhere, uh, but I don't know, maybe she wasn't invited to that exclusive members only club. Like many great cities around the world, San Francisco is being forced to reinvent itself. 
Everywhere you look, you see cranes building luxury high-rise apartments. And in neighborhoods all over town, the shells of the old houses are hiding new, expanded, and retrofitted palaces. These are the homes for a new generation who've been transforming this town into a power city. But as the march of progress pushes forward, the question is, will some be left behind? Turning back to the section of the movie uh, in which Pelosi is at least ostensibly dealing with, you know, what she calls the dark side of progress. So homelessness, uh, unaffordable rents, unaffordable housing prices, all that kind of stuff. I do think it's worth underscoring. I mean, for me anyway, uh, I'm not sure if you agree with this, but I felt that in the first part of the movie, when she visits, you know, the the startups, the incubators, uh, where people are talking about serendipitously synergizing opportunities and things like that, even though she represents those encounters as, you know, this isn't me on my home turf, you know, wow, they have a vending machine where you can get computer parts. Very much these are friendly encounters. I mean, she very much feels at home. And I think in the rest of the movie, when she's visiting, you know, normal people, ordinary people, she's much more treating them like an exotic tribe to be studied because she can't really do anything else. I mean, these are not people that she would ever encounter in day-to-day life or has encountered. As the film goes on, she has fewer and fewer rebuttals to the things that they're saying. I definitely felt a bit dirty during the second half of it when she's just like got her camera on homeless people uh, asleep in the streets. There's there's one section where she's just like going through a church and lingering on all the bodies of people sleeping in the pews. I mean, if if these images were in another movie, I think I think they would be morally acceptable. But just knowing that it's Ale- Alexandra Pelosi, well, knowing that they're not part of a, a perspective that's that's remotely critical of you know the system that's brought this into being or anything like that. She ends with this segment, this very heartbreaking segment on this guy who's in his 50s, who's now living in a one-room apartment who, you know, has basically been phased out of the corporate world. He's on the edge of homelessness and he can't get hired anywhere. And she's following him on the street as he's just kind of ranting to her about, listen, I live in a completely different world from you. The American dream is a joke. The American dream's a failure. I don't know. Don't you feel just a bit dirty? Her pointing her camera as if she's looking at monkeys in the zoo after... 20 minutes of unabashed fawning of, of all the all the exciting innovation and how, how great it is they got rid of that factory that was such an eyesore <laughs> in the middle of town. One of the things that she's actually internalized from the great tradition of American journalism is the idea that you've got to be sort of nonpartisan, you've got to be neutral, and that you've got to have balance. And that translates in this documentary to half of it is very pro-innovation, which you accept entirely on innovation's own terms. You accept that it is innovation. You don't question any of the baseline assumptions of what they're saying. Right, right. It's like the the people who are being uh, left behind, quote-unquote, as the film would uh, frame it, it's also kind of implicitly being like, yeah, I mean, but did they found a startup that got a billion dollars invested in a juicing machine that didn't work? I mean, come on. The closest thing that she comes to an actual critique of this new money is that, well, maybe they don't don't give enough back to the city. Maybe they don't invest enough money in. There's this very, you know, one of many heartbreaking moments in it where she goes to this gallery, this local art dealership that's closing. And they're closing uh, notably because the landlord came down. They've been they've been there for more than 30 years and the landlord came downstairs one day and said, I'm tripling your rents. So the proprietor had to leave and then all of the artists who were selling their work there uh, had, you know, didn't have a place to sell it anymore. She, she says that San Francisco has been forced to reinvent itself but not a lot of thought about the political decisions that are made that allow a system where the rent can be tripled.
tripled overnight and this guy has to go out of business. And then absolutely no questioning of, okay, well, the service that this gallery, this art dealership provided to the community, why is the deck so stacked against what this is bringing to the community? And and why are there so many incentives, so much, so much of being invested in a multi-billion dollar startup over there by this guy with a beard where, where the idea is it's like Uber for McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think we're we're being unfair here. I mean, throughout this movie, there really is a sense, and I mean, it's, it's right there in the, you know, the beginning of the movie with, with Jerry Brown and, and at the end as well. Uh, there's a sense that premise one, this is progress. And progress just happens. It happens independently. Well, that, that's premise two is that this is the, you know, th- this is the laws of nature playing out. Like when a, when a market economy does this, that's just a natural process unfolding and you can't do anything about that. So there's- at, at one point she says something like, the issues raised here raise a lot of conversations about the nature of capitalism. <laughs> and that's the closest she gets to to interrogating the system, you know? Uh, I mean, capitalism is still taken as a given. Like, obviously capitalism is the only way, but the conversations are, should we feel bad about it? Right, and I mean, even even though there's, you know, this kind of token scene on city council where they're having some, you know, debate about something, you know, they're hearing from citizens. I mean, I really don't think uh, the movie believes that political choices uh, led to this in any way. I mean, there's no sense that like, well, actually, even in a market society like modern day America and, you know, California, that's especially acute. Political authorities, whether it's a city council like in San Francisco, whether it's the executive branch of the California state uh, government, whatever, there's no sense that those authorities have their hands on important levers that can actually uh, shape the way something like a city develops. And the development uh, is itself a result of political choices. I mean, California is a solidly blue state where democratic controlled city councils have put on the books zoning legislation and, you know, regulations or rather lack of regulations around development that are literally what's driving up the rents. Uh, They have done so at the behest of companies like Airbnb, at the behest of developers who control or or exert a significant influence through campaign donations and other things and lobbying on the decisions that elected leadership make. Among other things, they try to keep down the housing supply on purpose because they know that if there's more housing, you know, guess what happens in a market when you have a greater supply of something? The price of the commodity goes down. Well, that's pretty bad if you're a developer. You'd rather sell a house for 15 million instead of 10 million dollars, or if you're a land Landlord, you'd rather rent a bachelor apartment for $5,000 a month instead of $1,500. All of this stuff is the result of choices that have been consciously made. And, you know, you really do not get that impression at all watching this film. The stakes of this movie, as I think you just said quite rightly, are, you know, well, this process is going to happen. And then the question is, do you feel bad about it or not? Are we going to make some tokenistic demand for a more inclusive type of capitalism, a more inclusive Silicon Valley? Are we going to disrupt the poverty and the homelessness along with the other stuff? Are the tech bros going to, quote unquote, give back a little bit? You know, those are the stakes of this movie. And it ends with her leaving San Francisco and saying words to the effect of, going forward, we're going to need solutions that uh, make things right for everyone. But I I sure know San Francisco can do it. If, if If one town can do it, it's this scrappy little place I call my home. You know, it's the city that never sleeps. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And and I'm, I'm curious to know what she thinks, given everything we see, what does she think the solutions are going to be? I mean, personally, I think they should uh, innovate the housing model. I mean, for for a long time, people have thought of houses as, 
you know, you have maybe two bedrooms, maybe three bedrooms. Yeah, the kitchen and the bathroom are distinct rooms. Maybe there's a basement. But what if, what if we innovated? What if we synergized distinctive room concepts into a serendipitous conflagration? What if we innovated the idea of a house where it's actually just one room? What if we had the toilet and the kitchen table and the bed all in the same room? And that way, that way everyone can share the space. What, what if what if we flooded the housing market with the house that uh, the Simpsons and the people of Springfield built the Flanders is after their house got destroyed? I can't remember if it burns down or whatever, where, you know, yeah, the toilet is just next to the sink. You know, we're storing everything on the cloud nowadays, which is such a great innovation that we don't even really have the need for physical property anymore. I mean, all you really need is a bed and a toilet. Toilet and maybe a kitchen table. Yeah, and with your uh, your one room yurt underground, you get a whole bunch of NFTs and uh, you know a free thirty day trial to a bigger room in the metaverse. And isn't that really the dream of communism? The end of private property you just <laughs> exists in the metaverse now. The way I kind of think about it, it's almost like a digital gold rush. When you bring in these tech companies who innovate, the entire community is going to make progress. Everyone is doing something. Everyone is doing something extraordinary. If the trends continue, the people who made this city, the magnet that it is, they're all going to go away. We should mention, just to further drive home the editorial thesis of this movie, uh, there's one other important thing towards the end uh, that I think is worthy of uh, comment here. The film has, at least in its midsection, you know, paid some lip service to the idea that, you know, the tech boom and all these rich people moving in here has driven up house prices, has driven up rents, uh, especially. Uh, but then, <laughs> about, uh, I don't know, four or five minutes before the end, you know, she has another interview with one of these, you know, tech CEO startup guys. And then, she has this little monologue where she's like, is it fair to blame the tech industry for, for homelessness? I mean, it's it's easy to blame them. You know, they're an easy scapegoat. But homelessness has existed long before the tech industry. And really, homelessness is part of a much bigger uh, and more complicated series of problems. So her own movie has contained like the rebuttal to that, which is like, no, these companies that are moving in and all the capital that's moving in is driving up rents and pricing people out and is undermining the housing supply. So actually, yes, you can blame the tech industry. Well, what can I say? Not a very good movie. It's been a while since I've said something is the worst thing we've ever watched. But uh, this is this is pretty down there, you know? I had so much fun. Let's go on another Alexandra Pelosi themed Odyssey soon. Now watch this drive. <laughs>